Hey team, it's Robert. Check out episode 358 and 359 if you haven't listened to those. This is part three with Dan Pinion, a command sergeant major in the U.S. Army who's now retired. In our conversation, he covers his recently released book, Chop That Shit Up, a tribute to our brave soldiers. The book encapsulates the trials and tribulations, the shocking and inspiring stories from their deployments in Iraq and elsewhere, his personal journey, the struggles with depression, PTSD, and the emotional toll of losing soldiers are candidly put forth. One of the highlights includes an emotional recounting of an IED explosion that claimed the lives of his fellow soldiers, Staff Sergeant Clint Story and Sergeant Bradley Best. Grappling with emotional turmoil associated with their tragic loss, Dan Pinion exposes the debilitating reality of PTSD among veterans. If you enjoy the content on this show, be sure to check out our Patreon page, Mentors, the number four, M-I-L. Be sure to subscribe and follow on all audio platforms that you listen to. And if you enjoy the video of these podcasts, you can head over to our YouTube channel and be sure to subscribe and hit that bell so that you won't miss a podcast episode. Thanks to everybody supporting the podcast. And now, episode 360. So, several things. It's blocked off, probably four or five square blocks. You can't get vehicles in there. So we casually evac had to change. That's my job as the first arm. So we're now using pull-less litters, figuring out casualty collection points, like you learn, mm-hmm. uh, casualty collection points, and figuring out how to evac casualties in case it happens. And we're rehearsing it. Two, we're working with a Marine unit we never worked with before. They've been a part of our brigade, but we never had to get to that section. We might have gone to their camp, we call it the ice cream factory, where they took it over. Yeah, not because they like ice creams or eat crayons. <laughs> I think it was an ice cream factory. <laughs> we're with a unit we never worked with habitually. Occasionally, we did missions, and we did some boat missions with them and some other stuff. But we had to learn our operating ways, and the Marine Corps and the Army is different. And in three, we had reports of one of the most deadliest snipers to ever attack us is going to be an area. So, for Dietrich's first mission, and before the captain left, we had all the leadership look at us, tell us David was ready for the mission, or any mission. I absolutely, 100% agree with that decision. I could put that kid against any scout, and he would beat you. He was ready for the mission. It just happened to be one of our worst missions we would have to do. But we do all our missions. Commander goes on R&R. XO and I are now running a mission. I'm running logistics. He's figuring out the operations. So we decide to send 1st platoon in first. And Dietrich, and, I'm sorry, Dietrich, yeah, we decide to send 2nd platoon in first. Dietrich's in 1st platoon. 2nd platoon is going to go in and recon the five houses to see if they're suitable of what we looked on the satellite map. If they attack from here, if he's here, we want to be here. Here's the combat outpost. And we templated our houses. Their mission the first night was to go in and recon as many of those locations as possible and then figure out what's the best place for us to go after. And we narrowed it down to two locations that the sniper would be. Two houses. We knew it. Just off intel and previous 
information. They recon the houses and occupied two of them preparing. First platoon is going to go in the next night. So second platoon will go out, first platoon will go in. And I remember first platoon getting ready to go out the gate or the mission. And they always filed by me. And I'm looking at them, I'm slapping them, like, hey, go get them. Hey, I'll be out there with you in the morning. Or I was going to go back out with second platoon on their second mission. After I had everything locked in logistically, I didn't want to fail that portion of it. I want to make sure it was covered down before I went on the mission with them. And Dietrich is near the end of it. And I remember Dietrich, yeah, freaking iPro is like this. Chin straps a little bit off. And I remember looking him dead in the eye. I'm like, Dietrich, fix your shit. And I grab him and he fixes it all. And I go to slap him on the back, just like that. And that little shit turned to me and just bear hugged me. And he said, this is the greatest day of my life. 19-year-old man who only wanted to be a soldier, became a scout, homeless, eating popcorn. The greatest day of his life was his first mission, and he died six hours later. Uh, They occupied the correct house. Dietrich had just come on shift, was maybe on shift 10 minutes, and he starts to see somebody like setting up a burlap bag, trying to mask the silhouette of the house we thought he would be in. And Dietrich saw him. Unfortunately, the sniper saw Dietrich. Dietrich popped his head up. He told his sergeant, I got something. Did everything right. And he popped up, not against the window. He's back like he's supposed to be, using the back wall and everything to to cover. And he raised up just a little bit to see and confirm when he was shot through the head or shot through the Kevlar into his head immediately. Now we're sleeping on mission like that. The only thing you have off is your boots, everything else. And your gears right here. You didn't take your uniform off. Nothing. Boots are the only thing that was allowed to come off. And I remember them shaking me like six in the morning, seven in the morning, like first aren't they're hit. I pop up, swivel over, and I'm throwing boots on. Meanwhile, my guys are running downstairs, and the Marines are supposed to escort us out. It's supposed to be the Marines and me. Meanwhile, our other platoon is QRF, is dead asleep because they just ran a 24-hour mission. They're getting up, and they're going to quick react after 10, 15 minutes after us. But I'm going with the Marines for casualty vac. Same thing. Our XO is on the net doing great things, and we knew the casualty collection point and everything. As I'm getting down to the vehicle, our vehicle's ready and the Marines aren't anywhere to be. Again, I'm not bad mouthing Marines. I freaking love them. But we rehearsed this, we practiced it, and when it came time to execute, they weren't ready. As they said they were supposed to be, and we practiced. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm getting the reports. They're now under fire. And we think the enemy is starting to attack them. So we start collapsing the second house to protect the first house. And the, the platoon leader and the platoon sergeant make a decision to collapse together and evacuate as one team, fighting a near ambush to evacuate. The Marines finally go, gate opens, and they freaking fly. And I'm the last vehicle. We're coming up to the casualty collection point, And I can see a little like smoke billowing from the grenade smoke grenades. And there's a tank sitting there, which wasn't there previously. I don't know why our army tank was there, but it was. Dead giveaway of where we're supposed to stop. And the Marines just kept going. 
and it's dust, whatever. And my driver, I'm like, fucking stop, Clayton. And Clayton slams on her brakes and the homies are, and we stop. And then there's dead silence as everything. Meanwhile, I can see right out my window and I can see them about three blocks away from me starting to come towards me. So I get out and I start banging on the tank hole, take off my Kevlar as I'm hearing bullets. And I'm like, open. I just want him to push the barrier out of the way. Mm -hmm. Just push the barrier. That way I can just take my Humvee down. No answer. I don't know why to this day. So anyway, I can see them and I tell the the Humvee, I'm like, turn it around because I knew we have to go back that way. So they're turning around. Meanwhile, I start running towards my soldiers and I get to the first intersection. They're two intersections away. And I can see Staff Sergeant Jesus Gonzalez, Jesus Gonzalez running up lead. This guy is the man. And I can see bullets just zinging around him, just zinging. And I can see them on a polis litter behind him carrying, and he's just popping smoke grenades, shooting back. I mean, they're in a near ambush. I do the stupid thing, and I start screaming at him, like, you're getting fucking shot at. And then all of a sudden, we're only 100 meters away, two blocks or whatever it is. He's screaming at me. He's like, you're getting shot at or something. (laughs) Who knows? And then I realize bullets are just impacting around me. So then I start returning fire. I pop a smoke grenade. And now I'm trying to protect myself and I'm trying to protect my soldiers. And they are running under fire out of nowhere. A Humvee with a 50 cal comes off the side street at the intersection I'm at, just comes flowing up and just starts rocking the 50 cal. It was amazing. I don't know how many boxes of ammo went in, but I can tell you, he emptied his basic load and that gun did not stop. He just kept reloading and he just unloading. And they come running behind the Humvee. We get back to my Humvee and we, now Dietrich, he had a good 220 without gear. And we try to get him up in Humvee and we get him in. And I don't know how Doc Black kept him alive, but he did. And now my medic was Doc Martin. He stayed with me. Doc Martin took it over. Meanwhile, second platoon was coming out with the Humvees. And this is a matter of five to 10 minutes. And I remember Clayton, my driver. I can't even, I can't even remember who the gunner is right now. Clayton was like, first round, what do I do? I'm like, do you know the way? And he said, Roger, I'm like, fucking go. And we drove through Ramadi solo all the way back to Charlie Med. I'm turning around. Now, remember, I have a commo driver specialist who has no idea, even though he's cross-trained, is going to drive three to five kilometers through the dangerous city. He has multiple IDs, et cetera, while I'm turning around trying to keep Dietrich alive. So the gunner is just telling them the way, going through. And me and Doc Martin are working on Dietrich to try and keep him alive. Meanwhile, the rest of 1st Platoon, if you think of Blockhawk Down or whatever it is, they are exfilling with 2nd Platoon's vehicles. They shoved as many as they could in the vehicles. And then the rest are running like the Mogadishu Mile. I mean, it's the only way to describe it. And they're running back to the ice cream factory, base, back to the base camp. Meanwhile, the, mar- the Marine vehicles are just now turning around. Like, that's how bang, bang, bang. And that Humvee that pulled up, just, just rock and rolled and saved our lives, was an engineer unit that was building the combat outpost. As they're building the combat outpost, saw the attack we were under and just took it on their own initiative and came up and saved our lives. And thankfully, we were able to recognize them. So 
We get back, and Dietrich didn't make it. Uh, I mean, as soon as they pulled him out, they pronounced pronounced him dead. And I remember they're getting they're moving to the mortuary affairs, and there's a bench out there. You don't realize the pain that soldiers go through. Just think about the medics and the behavioral health that had to deal with this every day. We lost our brothers, so we have an emotional toll. They're seeing it every day, just gruesome injuries and death. So you, Charlie Med, behavioral health, mortuary affairs, all right there in the golden triangle. And they have a bench out there where you just watch medics crying, and I didn't understand it until I was sitting on the bench. And I remember now our brigade commander's pulling up, Lieutenant General retired Sean B. McFarland, greatest man I ever met. And... I remember the mortuary affairs specialist or sergeant coming out. It's like first aren't time. And I tried to get up and I physically couldn't move. I couldn't. I that moment, December 29th, 2006, I broke. It all just came out. I couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't even talk. It was just grief. And I remember telling him, I said, I can't. I can't. And General McFarland, Colonel McFarland at the time, put his hand on me and he said, I got it. And he went in there and said goodbyes to David Dietrich where I couldn't. I broke that day. That's my point. So we did the angel flight. And I remember calling my rear D sergeant, Sergeant Corley. And I said, you will escort this man all the way home. Nobody else. It will be you. Nobody else escorts him. And he did. He met the body. He escorted David all the way back to Pennsylvania. And when they tried to contact, and again, I'm telling you what Sergeant Corley told me now. When they tried to contact the mother, she couldn't even afford clothes to go to her own son's funeral. So the army gave her a voucher to put on clothes. They couldn't even find the father. The father showed up the day of the funeral to bury him and didn't even have shoes on. This is what Sergeant Corley told me. Or his holy sneaker or something like that. And they buried David Dietrich in Marysville. Newspaper articles came out a few years later, or a few months later, saying he never should have gone in combat. I can't say I disagree. I can tell you the mission that David Dietrich went on, he was prepared for, he was qualified for, and he was a cavalry scout. Everything else is for other people to decide. I can tell you that young man was ready for the mission, found one of the most famous snipers, enemy snipers ever to attack us, found him, and the sniper was better than us. You know, I remember Sergeant Marco telling me that one day. He was like, look, he beat us because you start questioning everything you do. Why, why, why? And he did. He, he just, The guy beat us, and it was the guy we never caught. So in the book, the title of the chapter is The Greatest Day of My Life. And it was the day David Dietrich died. So if you look at the purpose of the book, and I know I told way so many stories, the purpose of the book is those people and heroes and my soldiers, your soldiers, our country's brave are never, ever forgotten. So as you you, you write it, I wanted to tell the truth. And, and my... From my view, what I saw, what I knew of them, what our soldiers knew, and I didn't want to hide anything. And what I just told you 
is 99% what you're exactly going to read in the book. Now, the book always, you know, describes a little bit more detail here and there. That was the purpose of this story. That's the purpose of me saying, please let me be a part of this experience in this podcast and tell this story because we all served with heroes. We need to tell their stories. We need to honor them. I have never visited their graves yet because of guilt, fear. I can't explain it, but I made a promise. Now this book's published and in 2024, I will visit all four of their graves. I was recently in Arlington as part of the wreath ceremony since I live in Virginia now. And I was able to honor Command Sergeant Major Eric Cook, who was my Brigade Sergeant Major that died on a mission with my scouts while I was on R&R. So I've made a mission to honor them. So I'm trying to use this platform to talk about the Clint stories, the David Dietrichs, Marquise Quicks, and the Bradley Bess, and the countless others that did heroic acts that we never recognized. And I'm hoping to change that. So I am trying to get Marquise Quick's award upgraded to what he deserves. I have all the sworn statements. I've worked with First Armor Division, who I hope sees this, to try and help me submit the award so he can be deserved and then let it take its course. But there's no way a man who saved the lives of six of his brothers jumping on grenades should not. And we failed. I failed the man, and I'm trying to fix these wrongs and get over the guilt. So... That's the stories of my soldiers. The title of the book, Chop That Shit Up. Where did that come from? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, at least now we can go to transition to something funny. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of kind of funny because one, men, we're old, or uh, some of us are old now. Get your colonoscopies. Because uh, I just had one two days ago. And I was like, hey, you guys would love the story or the title of my book. Chop that shit up. Uh, <laughs> and I got them pretty laughing. So men, a little side advertisement. Go get checked out. There you uh, go. <laughs> uh, good for your health. Uh, so I was fortunate to do a lot of stupid stuff when I was growing up in the Army. This is not really one of those cases, though, but this is probably one of the most important lessons learned I ever had. And I'm going to try. I might say the name different because I changed the name in the book. But when I tell the stories, I always use the real name, but I really don't want to use his real name. So I might say his name a little different. I can't remember what name I used. I tried to use something close or remind me of them. But anyway, I'll just say first aren't. So I was a private and my first duty station was Fort Ord, California. Now, if you had said Fort Irwin, California, I'd be like, sign me up, California, baby. And I'm from New Jersey. I got lucky that the recruiter said Fort Ord, California, once I learned what Fort Irwin was. Nothing bad about you, NTC. Love you. I only want to see you once every few years. Uh, And I got to a division reconnaissance troop, Div Recon, Humvees, motorcycles, and helicopters. And it was amazing. We had a fantastic unit and I was a private. So people know you had your common areas and one of ours was the latrine. And we were responsible for cleaning the latrine. Well, first aren't was also an asshole sometimes and did not like the cleanliness of his barracks. And we would always have GI parties. Well, I was determined not to have any more GI parties because that required us low crawling. I don't know how that cleans the latrine, but it did. Using toothbrushes, and we always have to go, I have to go clean my uniform, buy new toothbrushes. Was, and as a private first class, I was like, that's kind of stupid. So what I started doing was taking charge of the latrine. 
and I would kick them out in the mornings. And then I would start inspecting from the showers. It was showers over here, sinks over here on the other side of the wall. And then the, the latrine or the toilets, urinals, there we go. And then the door. And I would just work them out. I'm like, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. And then I was the kid at the door. He'd be like, hey, what was that movie? We were soldiers. Uh, like, hey, good morning, first Sar- or Sergeant Major. What's full fucking good? Like, that was me. Uh, I was the smart Alec. And again, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I guess I was in school growing up. Uh, I guess I was a clown. I was voted class flirt, though. So that's a good one. <laughs> uh, so I was at the door and I prayed rest and I would say at ease and I would greet the first Sergeant when he came to Spectre over the train. So we had a few minutes and I was in my room and I had my wall locker open and this is back in the day, two finger, three finger between the hangers. And I was, and you had your A bag and B bag packed on top, ready to go. You take uniform out, put a uniform in one of those deals. And I was getting ready and my gunner comes running in. I'm going to do everything I can not to use names. Cause I don't want to slip with a real name. The gunner comes in and he's like, pinion. You got to come in here and fix this. I'm like, whoa. And he was very even keel. He's from Miami. He taught me about culture. Just a really cool dude. For him to scream like that or be, I don't know what the word is, animated, something was wrong. So I go running into the train and him and my other guy are standing there by the door of one of the stalls. And like I squeeze, now remember I was skinny back then. I was tall and skinny. I squeeze in and I'm just looking at the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. And I wish I could describe it, uh, but I really don't want people. Yeah, no, I'm going to try and describe it. I said like, it's like longer than a bayonet. It was so big. Now just (laughs) next time you go to the bathroom, just look at your toilet. It was looped around. That's how big that thing was. And they're like, it won't flush. So I do, and I hit the handle, the water, and it doesn't even move. I mean, it, somebody's butt hurt after that crap. Uh, meanwhile, I can hear first sergeant screaming at the other platoons. Stairs look like shit. GI party. <laughs> and you're like, oh, here we go. <laughs> They're like, what do we do, Penny? Now, remember, I'm the lowest ranking guy, but I was taking charge of the latrine. And we stopped GI parties, by the way, for like three weeks when I was in charge. And I was like, all right, get out. And I sh- I'm inside, I shut the door from the inside, and then I crawl out underneath. And I'm like, all right, we'll just tell them it's broken. Uh, like, that's what's going through my head. Meanwhile, first arm is coming down the hallway, and I'll give you this brief. You, look, you got to buy the book <laughs> so you get all the stories. <laughs> I don't want to tell them all. First arm is coming down the hallway, and he, he eventually gets to me. And, well, I, I got to tell it. He was inspecting the fire extinguishers in the hallway. And I was like... Because a month earlier, we used to take the fire extinguishers when we were drunk and we would just shoot them all in the hallway. And then we put a wall locker at the end of the hallway and we put on our, was it Cavalars back then? Yeah, we put on our Cavalars. I'm make sure I wasn't steel pot. Put on our Cavalars and we would run down the hallway, slide head first in and see who could put a hole into the wall locker first. Well, that guy's a lot of trouble. The good news is no one ratted each other out because first time I'd be like, who did this? But none of us gave each other up. So we all got punished, but it was all worth it. So he's in checking into fire extinguishers. Well, he gets to me and I'm like, good morning, first time. You know, this place is so clean. You can't. He's like, shut up, Pinion. Everybody's failed. You're going to fail too. And I was like, ah, here's what I didn't know. 
I obviously learned it years later as a first sergeant. First sergeants are in charge of the barracks, <laughs> including maintenance. So he gets to the first stall, which is the very first one he checked, and he goes to push it, and it doesn't open. And he's like, who's in my shitter? Pinch it off. Get out of there, trooper. We got an inspection. You know, just being first sergeant. And I'm like, no one's there, first sergeant, whatever I said. He goes, what's the matter? I'm like, it's broken. He's like, what's the matter with that? I'm like, it won't flush. Now, I haven't lied yet. My integrity's still on track. I'm just changing my words a little bit. And then he's like, open it. And I'm like, oh, crap. Here we go. So opinion crawls up underneath. I open the door, and the door's behind my back, and the toilet's right over here. And he's standing right here. He looks, and all the soldiers are by the sinks ready to get yelled at for our whatever. And first arm looks at it, he goes, holy shit. <laughs> just like that. And everybody behind him starts laughing. And I'm like, yes, first aren't. And he just looks at me, just turns over and looks at me. And he goes, you know what you got to do, Pinion? And I'm like, no, first aren't. He's like, you got to chop that shit up, son. <laughs> As his hand is going in the toilet. Oh chopping it up looking me dead in the eye as he's doing it uh, he now pulls his hand out hits the flusher or whatever you call it right down beautiful i mean it's beautiful and now he's got a sh sh can i say shit stained hand knife hand mm -hmm. look at me in the eye and he's like Pinion, I'll paraphrase a little bit. He's like, Pinion, this is an important lesson. He's like, some days you're going to get stuff in front of you and you're not going to think you can overcome it. And there's obstacles you're going to face in your career and you're going to want to stop and give up. He's like, you know what you got to do when that happens? And I'm like, no, first time. He's like, you got to roll up your fucking sleeves and chop that shit up, son. <laughs> then he wipes his hand on my BDUs. <laughs> <laughs> walks out of the latrine and says third platoon you passed <laughs> and then kept on walking i'm almost gagging i'm embarrassed the soldiers are laughing at me and all i says i gotta go change my blouse <laughs> and then i went in my room changed my blouse but i learned something and that's why it's the very first story you got to read those more details mm -hmm. anything we do is obstacles and as a 19 year old private that's probably the number one thing I learned that made me successful and a lot of luck successful the rest of my career, because I, ref I hate the word. No, there's no obstacle too big. There's no mission I cannot do. And there's nothing I'll ever let me stop us from being successful because if it does, I just chopped it up and I pushed it out of the way or I flushed it and I drove on and Neil and Sean and everybody else will tell you, you can see that drive me as a leader. I refuse to say no to getting something done. It's not in the vocabulary because you just got to roll up your sleeves and chop it up. So that's the story of how the book, and I can't change the title because that story makes the title uh, and I can't change it. So I'm sorry if they don't want to put that on a screen or an advertisement, but that's the title of the book. Well, it's a great story. Yes. <laughs> So I was curious, you know, going back a little bit and thank you for sharing all those stories about those great heroes and soldiers and stuff that we certainly do want to highlight mm -hmm. and bring to attention to American citizens and stuff about some of the great war heroes that are out there that are not always put out there, you know, on a screen or anything like that. But they're just those silent heroes whose stories are just not told. 
And so thank you for for sharing those and those within the book. But you mentioned a, a time frame where you said, you know, your career may have been going up, but you were going down. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that. And maybe, you know, I know you compartmentalize. Many do. So I'm just curious, then, how then were you able to or have you been able to reconcile some of that that you have compartmentalized to be able to to move forward? Yeah, no, that's really good because I think I did it wrong. I'll explain why in a little bit. But so I just explained I broke on December 29, 2006. What I didn't share is just prior to that, yeah, I think it was prior to that, I'd gone home on R&R. And my wife, Solvig, will tell you, I wrote letters saying goodbye to my family. I have a one-year-old and a seven-year-old. And I knew I was going to die in Ramadi, Iraq. My soldiers were hugging each other and still going back on mission. We gave ourselves to our unit, to our country in Ramadi, Iraq, knowing we were going to die. One. Yeah, it's hard to say, but it's kind of a relief. I didn't worry about the future. Even though I was looking forward to the next mission, I wasn't looking much farther beyond that. I was going to die. And I went home on R&R, wrote my letters to my family, told my wife to move on. Don't pick a soldier. Not because I don't love soldiers, but she already sacrificed. She did that. Find stable. Go find the Tesla worker that's coming home every night. And I said goodbye to my boys that I would not see become men. And I'm telling you, I knew in my heart I was going to die. And I got back on a plane and went back to Iraq. Now, I was crying when I said goodbye to my kids. I remember telling Damien, my seven-year-old son, you are the man of the house. Do not cry when you say goodbye to me. Because I knew if he cried, I would not leave. But I had to. My soldiers needed me. I remember Damien, Tristan was a baby. He was one. He doesn't, he doesn't even remember it. Uh, and Solvik had been through multiple deployments with me. So it sucks, but we know the routine. But I remember Damien just lip quivering, but not crying. I probably caused why he doesn't hold my hand nowadays, which I'm working on. <laughs> but he didn't cry. That's the worst father advice I could ever give a child. And it's so wrong, but I didn't know. And we talk, we'll talk about leadership. I didn't know. And I said goodbye. And as soon as I turned around and started walking, tears just streaming. But in that moment, I gave myself to our country and I do not regret it. I knew I was going to die. So December 29th, I'm now broke. I'm mentally broke and now physically breaking. Multiple injuries from combat, multiple injuries from stupidity of running seven miles, et cetera, et cetera, doing stupid scout stuff with 100-pound rucks over terrain you shouldn't be walking. And I don't know what to do. So the Army's like, you're doing so good as a first sergeant. We're going to deactivate your unit. And we're going to send you back to the States and we're going to send you to either ACRC duty or ROTC. And I said, what are those acronyms? <laughs> Go ahead and tell me what that is. And they told me ROTC. That sounded way better than ACRC. 
It's like this. Uh, I heard this story. This guy was giving a speech at a ranger graduation, and he's like, "My sergeant sent me to ranger school," and he said, "And you better graduate without being recycled, or I'm going to send your ass to Korea." He said, and the guy said in his speech, "He said I didn't know what Korea was, but I knew I didn't want to go there <laughs> by his voice." So sort of the way I am, like, I didn't know what ACRC was, but the way he said it didn't want, now I know what it is. Didn't sound too enticing to me. So ROTC sound better option. What I didn't realize is the army took a combat killer of a highly performing unit who was grieving and I didn't know how to share it. And I said, Hey, we're going to take you from this army where everything resources is there to help you. And we're going to put you in Connecticut in stores at the university of Connecticut in farmland with the nearest facility an hour and a half away. It's a Navy base. Sounded great. Especially if you're thinking about retiring or a different change. Oh, Hey, let's get away from the army Two, you realize you need the army. And that's exactly what happened. I had just fought for three years in combat in a five year period was thrown into a civilian world, which I did not understand. And I did not adjust. Uh, I was grieving that I was not on the mission that killed Bradley Best and Clint Story. It was supposed to be my vehicle. I would have been that last vehicle that got hit, but their vehicle did. I was grieving the loss of David Dietrich and the decisions I made, losing my dr- former driver, Marquise Quick, and all the casualties. And I could see it. I could feel it. You know, they talk about PTSD, but we didn't talk about it. We just said, soldier, move on. And you did your stuff. And I, I explained to Kyle and Sean why I did when I did stuff as a command sergeant major. And I got thrown into an environment I was not ready for. Now, I do not say I was suicidal and I want to, and I could be totally wrong. A therapist might have said that. I have never said I want to kill myself, but I did not care if I died. If somebody needed somebody to sacrifice their life, I would promise you I would have been the first one to step up. Like, I got this. I did not care about living. And it showed in my actions. It showed in my life. I had deep depression. I had deep guilt. I also had a yearning to excel. So I became more of a leader in ways because I pushed the cadets to achieve stuff they have never thought possible as cadets in college who are supposed to be enjoying college life while sort of learning about the Army. Like, again, I thought lieutenants were all great. And I'm like, man, look at that. It's like born leader. Then you see him in college. You're like, man, come on. Uh, Get out of that frat house and that drink fest you just went on and come here and let's learn about land navigation today. (laughs) But in a ways, I took some of that from them because I was pushing them to do stuff they never thought imaginable. It didn't matter if they're studying to be nurses or pharmacists. I was like, no, you're going to Ranger Challenge and I'm going to teach you how to do a rope bridge and you're going to pull everybody across and blah, blah, blah. So I threw myself at work while inside just dying. I took it out on my wife and my kids. There's a reason my son's not a professional baseball player right now. It's probably because of the way I pushed him to excel. So I went overbearing on so many fronts. I was no longer romantic, according to my wife. I no longer talked about my feelings to my family or friends. And I got angry. Uh, I had PTSD without even knowing I had PTSD. I didn't even know what the words were. And I was bad and I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I was drinking 
And I'll tell you, two incidents pulled me out of it. One is my kids and my kids' friends. And I just went back to Connecticut and we sort of did a book signing. Again, I'm not, I suck because I wrote this book that I think is great and it's telling my heroes. I'm not really pushing it as I should be. But I went back to my friends that saved my life and I did a book signing in Connecticut and New Jersey where I grew up in Newton. And I told them, the parents, what they never saw of me. All they knew is Dan from the Army, combat hero, who, by the way, is now getting fat. But they didn't see the guilt, the depression, the anger. I tried to hide it. I was hiding it from as many people as I can, except for my family who took it. Now, I'm not talking physical abuse in any means, but I, mentally I was angry. And I said words I should never have said. You get cold. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly cold. right, Neil. Yeah. And the kids saved me. Little League Baseball and my coach friends, who became my best friends for life, saved me. Coaching those kids showed me there's something else out there. There is light in our lives. And as dark as we can be, and the stuff that I did that they will never know about, I mean, it's just, you don't talk about it ever, and we will take it to our graves for life what we've done in combat. Oh, that darkness and anger they will never see. Those kids showed light. And love, coaching those kids saved my life. And those parents from Connecticut, Mansfield, Connecticut, saved my life. And I tell, I told them that last month. So I now go to summer camp at Fort Lewis, Washington. And I am bad inside. I'm just dying. And I meet a ranger buddy right off the bat and we hit it off. We are, we don't even know each other. And he was a ranger bat since it was a private. I've never crossed paths with this man. Maybe, maybe a mission or something. I, we didn't know each other and we hit it off like best friends. And we started pushing our cadets that we didn't even know from other universities. And we started pushing them and we were the best platoon in the regiment. We won every streamer you can win because we had this excellence of drive to succeed. Uh, and the cadets were eating it up. I had nurses eating it up, running through the obstacle course, trying to beat the course record that we beat. High five and chest bumping each other. It was amazing watching those cadets. And we get out to the last field exercise at the end of summer camp where they get evaluated. And we go to a FOB situation because that's how the Army was fighting at the time. and. They have to do test fire of their machine guns before they go to their sticks lanes. And they bring out these machine guns and they're M60 machine guns. Now, this is 2008. Got the pig and, out. And you got the pig or the hog or whatever you want to call it. And the only two people who knew the M60 machine gun are me and Ranger Buddy. So we start inspecting them before you sign for the equipment. You start, And out of like 10 machine guns, three of them are operational. We're now stripping parts from one to make the others operational, which you're like, they're like, hey, what are you doing? You're like, nope, nope, taking this coil over here mm -hmm. and this spring is going over here to make this feed tray work, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, the cadets can't test fire their window, their time, because we're fixing the guns that they brought out there crappy. Meanwhile, the FOB mayor, non-commissioned officer in charge, NCYC, is starting to scream at the cadets for messing up his schedule. 
And I'll be honest, he's just being a dick to cadets. I called every cadet sir and ma'am from day one. I treated them like a lieutenant so they understood how they should be treated and what was expected of them to back towards us as non-commissioned officers. And he was being a dick. So my ranger buddy gets up as I'm fixing the last machine gun and he, and they start having words and they're getting closer and closer nose to nose. PTSD Dan uh, decides he's going to fix this. Uh, And I got up right in between them. And I remember saying, Hey, calm down, brother. You don't have to be a dick to the cadets. And I was like, don't fucking call me brother. Now I call everybody, brother. I call the new salesman at the car dealership or the restaurant brother or battle. If it's a woman brother in battle and don't call me brother, get the fuck out of my face. And I flipped and I attacked him. Uh, I think statute of limitations is up. (laughs) Uh, And I snapped, I broke in a Ramadi mentally and I just snapped physically because I just outburst with my hands where I've never, ever done that before. A year after leaving Ramadi. And they separated us. Can you're out of here, opinion. Uh, and they sent me to behavioral health at the hospital. I think it's Madigan there at Fort Lewis. And they sent me to the hospital. And I go in. And my ranger buddy has to escort me. And he's kind of mad because he's like, he likes the field. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't want to escort the guy who just snapped to some guy I'd never even, I only knew that NCO for five minutes. You're just being a dick. And I snapped. And I go into behavioral health and you're like, oh, we can't see you for three days. But fill out this survey on the computer screen. And again, I'm only telling you how the Army was treating. We didn't understand TBI and PTSD. And this is 2008. And I'm on a screen. I must have answered 200 questions. And I'm probably not exaggerating on a computer. And it all related to, do you drink alcohol? Do you do drugs? Are you feeling suicidal? Uh, and it's just question after question after question. And I get done and they tell me they can't see me for three days, but I, I know I need help. I touched somebody that I should not have touched in a way you shouldn't be fighting. And they say, here's your appointment for three days and here's your medication. And they just pushed me my prescriptions. I said, stop. How did you prescribe this to me? And I'm getting mad. How did you just throw medicine at me? I didn't talk to anybody. You're like, oh, it's from the questions you answered. I was like, fuck no. I said, you better get somebody out here right now. And they heard the commotion and a psychologist came out. I'm telling you that day truly saved my life. And I, there had to be 10, 15 people in that waiting room. Whoever missed their appointment because of me, I apologize, but I'm alive because you missed that appointment. She took me back, sat me on the chair, couch, whatever it was. And after 15 minutes, she picked up her phone and said, cancel all my appointments today and tomorrow. And she talked to me for 24 hours, over two days, all day long. And then next day I came back all day long. And she's like, you need inpatient help. And I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> hell no. Oh, and I was like, all right, doc, we got compromise here. I said, let's, let's try this word outpatient oh, back at my university. She, she, I had her crying as much as I was crying. And she listened to me. She understood me. And we agreed to a plan. And in 2008, I started my journey on behavioral health from that counselor who listened to me and canceled 
countless appointments to save my life. And we started that journey. So I made it a point, and this will Neil will tell you, or I'm sorry, Kyle, I'm just used to saying, sorry, Neil. Uh, Kyle will tell you, I made it a point to never hide behavioral health and be as transparent from December 29, 2006 to that moment in 2008, around August of 2008, I swore I would be open and transparent and candid to my soldiers from this day forward because I understood what they were hiding from me as a leader. And I absolutely could not have them. If they're going through half of what I was going through, I knew it would be dangerous. So I made a mission to never hide my journey to recovery. It could have hurt my career. I don't know. And I tell you, there is a stigma. So for some reason, even with these failures and attacking another non-commissioned officer, I never got in trouble. And I went back to the University of Connecticut and I was selected for the Sergeant's Major Academy. And I was told, now again, I'm going up in rank and I was at my lowest point when I was selected for Sergeant Major. And I was just now starting my journey. Now, what happened was an amazing thing. My career went like this, but I went like this inside. And I will sacrifice that every day of the life or every day of my life. My career, I hit the pinnacle of what I needed to hit. So I became a Sergeant Major. And then I went to, as a command Sergeant Major, to 3-1 Cav at Fort Benning, Georgia, or Fort Moore now. And I still pushed the soldiers to excel. I was an asshole on standards. Don't park on the grass. <laughs> Again, I'm not trying to be that that guy. It's like they teach you making your bed first thing in the morning accomplishes a task and it makes you feel good about yourself. So why don't do it? I looked at everything. Now, again, chop that shit up. I looked at every small task as meaningful. Don't try and excel at the umbrella. Excel at the routine, attention to detail, my minuscule stuff that matters when it's collective. And that's where I focused. So don't park on the grass. March to the motor pool because I refused to drive my vehicle when I showed up. I parked the vehicle and I walked the rest of the day because I didn't understand how leaders, why the fuck are you running from meeting to meeting? How are you leading people going from meeting to meeting? I scratched half the meetings I could be. Uh, Command Sergeant Major Green yelled at me for missing meetings. I didn't, if it didn't meet the focus, mission, intent of our brigade, our division, our unit, then why are we doing it? It looked like a nonsense meeting. Now, I added some stupid ones myself, I'm sure. But I focused what I thought was mattered, and I got rid of everything that didn't. And Stevie Jones, as my ops sergeant major, we were drill sergeants together. He was my first sergeant for a time. He was the only first sergeant to make it a cycle through basic training without getting fired. We gave him a certificate. <laughs> uh, he was amazing. He had to take up some of the slack of meetings. But I walked. Walking made me walk by the barracks. It made me walk by soldiers and call them by their names. Hey, Adam, how are you doing? I'd be like, Sergeant Major, I am doing good. Adam Gasper, mm -hmm. one of our platoon sergeants, a great man. Oh, gas uh, nasty. Yeah. Oh, shout uh, out, man. Yeah. What's up? So because of my failures, I made it a point to make sure no one else experienced what I did. Or if they did, they understood that somebody else went through it with them. So I announced every time I had a behavioral health appointment. 
And I would go in behavioral health in a minute and the first few appointments and there'd be one or two of my soldiers there. By the 10th or 15th time I go to my appointment, there'd be 10 to 15 soldiers there. I was trying to erase the stigma. Sometimes me and the behavioral health specialist who classified me PTSD spent hours going through and I knew it was bad. Sometimes we go in there and just talk about leadership in general. It wasn't even about problems, but I knew if I had to talk about problems, I could go to him. But I also knew my soldiers trusted me to lead them correctly. And I sought behavioral health. And Sergeant Major of the Army, Grinston, a few years, he just retired. Really good man. He gave me a good ass chewing too one time. He said, you go to the gym to do your physical fitness. You go to church to do your spiritual fitness. Why on earth would you not go to behavioral health to do your mental fitness? And it was so powerful. And I thought about it. And it's so, man, it's years late. That should have been 20 years ago we should have been saying that. And we should have been stigma. So I tried to reduce the stigma of behavioral health. I tried to tell people what PTSD was. And then, hey, guess what? I'm not perfect. And I've been fired a couple times. I've been fat. I've been skinny running marathons. Now I'm back fat. Leaders are not perfect. I was only a squad leader one time. I was only a section sergeant one time. I was only a platoon sergeant one time. I was truly only a first sergeant one time. I was only a battalion command sergeant major one time. I've never got a second shot. The Army's like, great job, next, move up. You're learning how to be a command sergeant major. And I ran Sean Jarvis and his first sergeants down the first few months. I was nonstop, and it was wrong. But there's a backstory to why I was pushing them because I couldn't fail because I was threatened. If I failed, I was fired by the division sergeant major. You're an asshole. But I made it a point. We're going to focus on basics always, master the routine, attention to detail, and we're generally going to care about each and every one of our soldiers. We never had a suicide. And I'm not saying anybody who's had a suicide failed in any way, but I am proud of the fact that our, we, our behavioral health numbers went up seeking counseling. I am proud of that to help them. And I fought, we were just talking about before we started taping. I am proud that I fought with the army who tried to deny one of our soldiers drill sergeant school because she sought, she sought behavioral health treatment after a year long deployment because she had marriage problems when she returned. No shit. Who hasn't had marriage problems when they return from a deployment? Routines are set, especially with kids. It's always going to happen. And she sought, well, that's hard. Uh, She sought uh, treatment. And the Army's like, hey, we don't know if we should put you in a position of a trusted being a drill sergeant because you went to mental health or behavioral health. Are you fucking crazy? That's who you want. She's excelled and recognized she needed help, got it. And it's continuing to excel while getting treatment. And you're saying that's not who you want teaching our next soldiers? You lost your freaking mind. And we fought it and got it. So that's the stigma. And I think the Army's come a long way since those days. I mean, we're almost 20 years later. And I I hope behavioral health is not a stigma anymore. Uh, it should not be. And I encourage people that are in to seek it, even when you're retiring. Go seek behavioral health because you're about to go through adjustment like I did coming from war to civilian world. Go seek behavioral health now to prepare you for retirement because everyone in this room knows when that door shuts, who who are you? And that's not a bad thing. 
focus on the current and the soldiers. Mm-hmm. I got the VA and everybody else take care of me now. Or as I say, the best medicine for another vet is another vet and us telling our stories. Uh, so I think I sort of answered, but that's behavioral health and PTSD. I think I got them both at the same time. Actually, it's even leadership. You gave yeah. a lot of great leadership uh, aspects there. So, you know, and some of the things that you're talking about is you're hoping that it transition in that way. Where we're actually taking care and, and removing the stigma. I often wonder at times because the war ended and the majority of those soldiers who served in combat are now starting to separate or or already have separated over that period of time. If it's improving because we have less opportunity or less soldiers, sailors, Marines or whatever that were engaged in some kind of post-traumatic stress situation. And, and I'd like to believe that it is improving, but I, I still have to it still eats at me in the back of my mind. Are we yet doing enough? Have we placed the proper controls that there are always going to be situations in which individuals are in harm's way? And and have we done enough to ensure that when they return, there's a process? I hope so. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think just like you train on a weapon, mm-hmm. you have to train the soldier's mind as much as the physical ability. And I was talking, he's now a division sergeant major right now. And one of our old first sergeants was the armor school sergeant major, Tony Towns. Between Jackson and Tony Towns, I told him, I said, if you, they said, Dan, with all your experience as you're retiring, again, I, I was not a, not way up here with some of these famous people. I was just Dan. They said, with, with your experience, what was some stuff you would change? I said, I would put retirement training and behavioral health training in every NCOS school system from, I think warrior leaders course is mm-hmm. called warrior leaders course. Now down here at the E4 to E5 level up to the executive leaders course or nominative leaders course. When I went through, it's called the executive leaders course at the very top, talk about retirement and talk about behavioral health, mental health, and every one of those courses leading up, you have to train the mind. And, it, and I think we're, we're getting better, but I now work for a medical command and I see the shortages across our army active and our specialists, specialties, et cetera. I, where our numbers are going up in the veterans affairs, VA side, sometimes you see them going down active duty because those specialties are pulled over to more money, et cetera, et cetera. And we're trying to say, Hey, we need, there's a purpose. I got the money, but there's a purpose in what you're doing and we need you. Uh, And we can never have enough. So I, I hope it continues to get better. I think we did the right thing for Benning or at the time we were there where they embedded embedded behavioral health, EBH. EBH, the yeah. trailer right out yeah, front trailers of the right in between our brigade footprint. You have to walk trailers up and right there is behavioral health. I hope we have enough numbers that we're doing that to every brigade footprint to allow yes. soldiers to walk right into yes. it and get seen. You got to train the mind. It's like just like going to the aid station. Yeah, just no, like going yeah. to just like going to sick hall. You could go, you could report there just like you could sick hall. So I I've been out five years now, and I'm that gray beard. And I'm not going to talk about hands and pockets. Oh, look at them walking across the grass, or what do you mean a ponytail? Like I don't care about any of that stuff. When it's time to answer the call, we will always answer the call. I learned that when don't ask, don't tell was lifted, et cetera. I was like, oh my god. One as a private, one of my medics was gay. Told me it was gay. None of us freaking cared. 
do your job, doc. I'm drunk. Give me an IV on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he did. And when I went to the field, he was great. Nobody cared about your sexuality. So I remember when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was coming. I was sorry. Yeah, we were sorry major, 3-1 calf. Yep. And they lifted it. And all my cooks got married to each other. Half my mechanics got married to each other. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. I didn't care. The only thing I cared about is how do we take care of people? So now we have administrative questions Mm-hmm. of how you care. That's where we need to be. None of it matters, man. None of that stuff matters. Focus on standards, train, train your money, train your mind. And I promise you, if it's time to answer the call, we are going to answer the call and we're going to do it aggressively and violently. And you not, you're going to wish you didn't mess with America or the soldiers, sailors, Marines, et cetera. No, and I just came from Germany six months ago. And I promise you those soldiers in European theater right now, know their jobs regardless and their minds are getting trained dan it was a pleasure you coming here sitting down sharing your journey your story chop that shit up the book yep. i hope people go out and find it check it out and i hope those that are listening can aid you in your call to to bring attention to these great warriors and and what they've done and help reward them in the way that they need to be or award them in the way that they need to be awarded for their grave, their great bravery. For sure. No, yeah. No, I appreciate it. If I could just say one, Kyle, I freaking love you, man. Uh, I'm <laughs> so proud of you. On, man. Thank you. Uh, so much. And Sean's house. Sean knows how I feel about it. We've had so many conversations, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I will tell you, Robert, it was great meeting you too. I love you. <laughs> I love you, Dan. I love you too, brother. Uh, here's what I will say. And I'm not trying to promote the book. The book is on Amazon, blah, 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 you know, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. You can find it. Chop that shit up. It's not hard. Just put an asterisk instead of an I and shit and you'll be all right. <laughs> uh, my phone number is in that book. Because I did lose two soldiers after war when they left me, Jared Rogers and Jose Diaz, because they couldn't beat their demons. And so in the book, I put the resources for veterans and I put the hotline numbers and the emails and I put my phone number. Two people have read the book, hopefully more than two people, but two people have read the book, saw the phone number and called me and I've answered the phone. I promise you. If any veteran out there needs talk, needs assistance, or anything I can do, if it's in my power to help, I will help you. And I promise you, I will always answer that phone. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity just to share that. And then if anybody can help me recognize just a fraction of the heroes that need to be recognized, I would greatly receive your assistance. So thanks, Robert and Kyle. This has has been amazing. Well, we we may have you back. I think there's still more that can there's, uh, there's be shared. Yeah. And and I not only that, but I feel like there's going to be a time where individuals are going to be reading the book. You're going to get that type of feedback. It'll be interesting to see how you may have helped heal others through this story, stories, yourself and those individuals. And, and I think that's also part of the healing process. We can't tell you how many times we've heard individuals that came forward and said it's people like yourself who stepped up and it saved their life yeah Yeah, so i hope it does no i appreciate it guys this this has been amazing now i gotta go explain to my wife on a four-hour car ride to savannah to see her son why i never told her half those stories i just shared (laughs) (laughs) so this would be a fun conversation (laughs) 